Good morning. If you would turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 12. 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. We'll continue in the passage we have been in for a while. Starting in verse 12, if you would read along with me. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us, um, us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the, the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Dear me, Father God, I thank you, Lord, for this passage, God. I pray that uh, you're just with us this morning, Lord, as we continue to talk about love, Lord, especially love in the context of a local body within a local church, Lord, love here at Country Oaks, God, and how we love each other, God. I pray, as I've been praying throughout the first or throughout this book of First John, Lord, that our love, God, is a testimony to all the non-believers in Tehachapi. That when they see our church, Lord, this local body, that they see your love. So be with us, Lord, in that high calling. In your son's name, amen. For last month, we've been in First John chapter 4, 7 through 21, verses 7 through 21, and we've been saying this is the greatest passage on love in all of Scripture. And because of this, we've really been digging in deep and spending a lot of time on this passage, trying to answer the question, what is biblical love? Especially loving one another within the local body, within the church. I hope you're seeing, as we've been going through 1 John, that biblical love is actually very countercultural. In our culture... I've said from this pulpit a few weeks ago, in our culture, love is closely related to the idea of tolerance. In our culture, you are unloving if you are judgmental at all. And it goes beyond this. You are unloving in our culture if you do anything less than 100% affirm and celebrate everyone's philosophical views, theological views, personal beliefs, or personal moral convictions. If you don't 100% affirm everyone's personal beliefs and lifestyles in our culture, 
you are considered unloving. In other words, to say someone is wrong or something is wrong, theologically or morally, is an unloving act in our culture. Right? That's our cultural understanding of love. Love and tolerance are, are equated in our culture. And really, we've said this is a very shallow understanding of the word love. I mean, the word tolerance itself is a very passive word. And the most simplistic understanding, it's really just leaving people alone. Leaving people alone in their philosophies, theologies, personal beliefs, lifestyles. Even if they're false beliefs, false theologies, even if they're living a sinful lifestyle that would lead to destruction. But the biblical understanding of love is so much more rich, right? It's so much more deep. So we've been spending a lot of time in 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 21, looking at the, the idea of what is biblical love. And John, I believe, gives us seven aspects of biblical love. Seven aspects of biblical love. Two weeks ago, we looked at three of them, and I just want to do a quick review of these three. The first one was this, that biblical love starts with God. Biblical love starts with God. In other words, God is not defined by love. Instead, God defines love. Or another way of putting it is, love doesn't tell us who God is. God tells us what love is. So biblical love starts with God because, look at verse 7, it says, love is from God. In verse 8, God is love. God's character reveals to us what love truly is. The second aspect that we went over two weeks ago is that biblical love is sacrificial. We spent a whole sermon, actually, three weeks ago in Genesis 22, Abraham offering Isaac up as a sacrifice. I want you to look at verse 9. It says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Love was made manifest. That Greek word that is translated manifest just really means seeable. Love was made seeable in Christ's life and death. It was made seeable in the Father's sacrifice. Look at verse 10. It gets even clearer. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God is love. And he loved us. And his love was sacrificial. God the Father sacrificed his Son so that we might live. And God the Son was a willing sacrifice, sacrificing his life. Biblical love is sacrificial. It sacrifices money, time, energy. It sacrifices preferences. I guess the hardest thing in the church that I've seen, what we prefer, our preferences. What's Paul says? Love doesn't insist on its own way. Even sacrifices one's own life for others. So biblical love is sacrificial. The third aspect we went over, and we spent a lot of time on this one two weeks ago, biblical love is active. It's active. Verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. In other words, we didn't pursue God. He pursued us. Even though we offended him, he was the one that was offended. Even though we sinned against him, he still pursued us. And on top of that, he pursued us even though we wanted nothing to do with him. Our cultural definition of love is so passive. Tolerance. 
It's such a passive word. And I've heard I mean, people say, you just need to let people live. You just need to leave them alone and let them do what they want. Biblical love is different than that. Biblical love pursues. Biblical love is active, even if it offends. Even if it offends. So the first three aspects of the sermon two weeks ago is biblical love starts with God, biblical love is sacrificial, and biblical love is active. I want to go over the next four aspects of biblical love that is found in 1 John, and here's the four points that we'll be going over this morning. Biblical love makes the invisible God visible. That's the first point. The second one is biblical love is doctrinally sound. Third, biblical love brings assurance. And lastly, biblical love is practice. Biblical love is practice. So let's start with that first point. Biblical love makes the invisible God visible. If you would look at verse 12, it says this, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I just want to say this is an extraordinary calling for the church, for the local bodies. God is invisible, meaning he can't be seen. And we learned in verse 9 that the love of God was made manifest, meaning made seeable in Jesus Christ. But Jesus no longer lives with us. He's no longer visibly present. Therefore, the only way our culture will see, the, the, will see God's love visibly is through our love. Especially in how we love one another. Our love for one another, our love for one another within the local church makes God's love seeable. Jesus said something very similar, right? In, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35, he says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, people will see me by how you love one another. Turn with me, actually, to Acts chapter 2. I want it's an interesting passage. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. This is actually truly the first church ever. You know how many churches have that name first in front of it? Like first Presbyterian or first Methodist. This is first. <laughs> and guess what? It's Baptist. Verse 41, I'm telling you, it's Baptist. Let me just give you some context. Peter just preached the gospel for the first time as, as the church. It's going out the gospel message, and many believed. Right? And look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. First Baptist, that's what this is. And there it added that day about 3,000 souls. Not only was it First Baptist, but 3,000 souls. The first church was a mega church. 3,000. And I say that jokingly, but I hope you see that it's not the church size. There's this push right now that churches need to be small. Right? The churches are supposed to be small. 3,000 people. This is a big church. And look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Just so you know, the apostles' teaching, what is that? That's scripture, right? The apostles are inspired by God as they were teaching, as they were writing. It's why we're in 1 John, because John was inspired by God as scripture. In other words, they devoted themselves to scripture, to fellowship, and to prayer. 
Verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And I don't have time to spend a lot of time there, but, but through the apostles is important. Look at verse 44, though. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as, as any had need. In other words, they sacrificed their own goods to take care of each other for the needs of others. And look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together. I'm going to get a little sidetracked here because, again, there's this movement that I'm seeing within Christianity that I think can be somewhat dangerous if it's, if it's going the wrong way. Um, day by day, attending the temple together. There's a big misconception that this first church was a home church. How do you fit 3,000 people in a home? You don't, right? So what did they do? They met in the temple, which is a big building dedicated to worship, right? They met together at worship, probably sang, heard God's word, prayed together. What's that sound like? What we're doing. Not only that, look at verse 46 again. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they came together as a large group, worshiped together in the temple. Then they would break up into smaller groups and meet at each other's homes. What's that sound like? Small groups. Or what we call at our church, growth groups. We come together for corporate worship as a corporate body of like-minded believers. to to sing, to worship, to hear God's word. Then we break up into smaller groups in each other's home for a deeper, more intimate fellowship so we can love one another. And I believe that love is a witness to our community, by the way. It's a misconception to think the first church was just a home church. The only reason the early church became exclusively home churches or exclusively met in homes was because of persecution, and it was dangerous to get together as a large group. But guess what? As soon as persecution ended, what did they do? Built church buildings and met together as large groups. That's not why we're in Acts 2, though. I, I, I just want you to, to know that because there is this movement that that says that all churches should be home churches and small. That's, and they use this passage of all passages to prove that. 3,000 members meeting together in a temple, not at homes, then breaking up into homes. Anyways, I'm not in this Acts 2 for that. I want you to see the love of this church. That's why we're in Acts 2. Look at verse 46 again. It says this, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Their love for each other, their love for one another in this church displayed the love of God. It was a witness Look at look what it says. It says, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If you're serious about evangelizing and reaching the community, reaching to Hatchby and reaching the world, making God known, 
You should be spending a lot of time within the church loving. And don't get me wrong, you should be spending a lot of time outside of the church sharing the gospel. But we should also be in the church loving one another as a witness. Because our love for each other makes the invisible God visible. Second point this morning is biblical love is doctrinally sound. That sounds weird, huh? This would be a point that I'd bring up. Biblical love is doctrinally sound. Verse 13 says this, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. In other words, John is saying here, we know that we are saved. We know that we are saved because we have the Holy Spirit living within us, which is a common theme in Scripture, that we know our salvation is true because the Spirit lives within us. But here's an important question. How do you know the Spirit lives within you? Is it some supernatural feeling that we have? I would say that's dangerous because Mormons claim that they have this supernatural feeling that affirms their salvation. Actually, Jesus told us how we knew, would know the Spirit lives within us, and that's found in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, 6 through 8, and this is what it says in verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind, and we've talked about this recently, the wind, that word wind right there in Greek is the same word for spirit. It's a play on words. It can mean wind or spirit. The wind or the spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. In other words, you don't see the wind. What do you see? The effects of the wind. You see, see leaves moving. You hear the sound of the wind. You don't see the wind. You, you see the effects of the wind. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. You don't see it. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. As in John is not claiming that we know we are Christians because we have some feeling Rather, it is the evidence, it's the evidence in our lives that, that is produced by the Spirit that proves that we are Christians. You can't see the wind, you can't see the Spirit, you only see the evidence of the, the Spirit moving, the, the wind blowing. Now I want you to think about the passage we're in. We've been saying this passage is the greatest passage on, on what? On love, Right? It's the greatest passage on love. And, and so you would think that John's in the middle of this passage. He would, he would say that this evidence that the Spirit is living within us is that it produces what? Love. That's what you would think. But, and, and, you know, to be honest, I, as I was reading through this passage, I, this, these verses just seem out of place, verse 13 through 15. And many commentaries even just say that the, the evidence is love that's being produced. But that's not what the passage says. Look at verse 13. It says this, By this we know that we abide in him and, and he in us, in other words, that we're saved, because he has given us his spirit. Now look at the evidence. What's the evidence of the spirit? Look at verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. The evidence of new birth, in other words, the evidence that the Holy Spirit has has changed our hearts and lives within us, verse 15 says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Right? In other words, whoever confesses correct doctrine surrounding Jesus, and that's just a way of saying the biblical Jesus, whoever confesses him, has evidence that the Spirit lives within them that they've been born again. 
So what's this have to do with love? Because this is right in the middle of this great passage on love. I think it's very interesting that these three verses are right in the center of this. Right? I mean, love mentioned 29 times in verses 7 through 21. As we said, that's two times a verse. And right in the middle of this great passage on love, we have 13 through 15, which is about confessing correct doctrine, confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. This is not the only time John does this. I want you to just look with, with your scriptures and look at the headings. That kind of helps you what's going on. And we've been in First John, so you should be familiar with this. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, what's that about? It's largely about love. Chapter 3, 11 through 24 is largely about love. The word love is used seven times in that passage. And then, of course, if you go over to, to chapter 4, 7 through 21, this is the greatest passage on love in all of Scripture. The word love is used 29 times. What is right in between these two passages? A passage on believing correct doctrine. Test the spirits. In other words, test test if teaching is false or not. Right in the middle of these passages. I want to remind all of us as we get so deep into this passage, what First John and why First John was written in the first place. It was written to fight against false teachers. False teaching and false doctrine that was getting spread. John in these passages, I truly believe, chapter 3 and chapter 4, is binding correct doctrine with love. One pastor said it this way, right love naturally flows out of right theology. Right love naturally flows out of right theology. Therefore, believing and confessing correct doctrine is loving. Is loving. Speaking boldly about Christ is loving, even if it offends even if it damages or destroys the relationship. This view on love is so countercultural, is it not? Our culture sees truth and love as almost opposite things. I'm just going to say some words that surround the word truth, that are kind of synonyms of the word truth. Let me just say a few of them. Truth, especially biblical, right? Doctrine, theology, sound teaching, philosophy, dogmas, biblical truth. Don't all those words sound cold? That's a cultural thing. That's not a biblical thing. Those words sound unloving. But that's not true for John. Love confesses the truth. Love speaks truth. You know, it's not just John, it's Paul too. What's the second greatest passage on love? And you can argue it's the greatest passage on love. That's fine. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. It says this, Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude does not assist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. That verse right there is so countercultural. Cultural, our culture says love is equated to tolerance. Those are kind of similar ideas. Paul says biblical love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It does not rejoice. It does not celebrate sin. Instead, it rejoices with truth. Biblical love, by the way, which is real love, believes and proclaims biblical truth. Listen, our culture, and it's creeped into the church, 
It's creeped into the church in, in major ways. Thinks you must sacrifice truth. You must sacrifice doctrine. You must sacrifice theology to love. It's not what the Bible says. And truthfully, the Bible says the exact opposite. It says that through the Spirit, we believe and embrace correct doctrine surrounding Christ. And in love, we confess that doctrine. So biblical Biblical love is doctrinally sound. Biblical love also brings assurance. It brings assurance. Look at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Isn't that an amazing verse right there? Verse 17. It starts off by saying we may have confidence. That word confidence is the third time it's used in 1 John. Confidence in all three times. It's talking about confidence in front of a holy God. And we've spent time on that. And that's, that's amazing within itself that we can have confidence in front of a holy God. But look at verse 17. It says this. We may have confidence for the day of judgment. That's amazing. I know a lot of older saints that are so excited for when Jesus comes back in the the second coming. I know a lot of younger saints that are are excited for that day. You know that day is going to be very scary. (laughs) But because of what Christ has done for us and the love of God, we may have confidence and we can be excited for that day. Amen. That's amazing. How? How could this be? How could we have this confidence? Well, look at the second part of this amazing verse. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. That's just an amazing line right there. One pastor said it this way. This stunning statement means the Father treats the saints. He treats us, Christians. And I want to be clear. I'm talking to Christians. If you don't have faith in in the Lord this morning, I'm not talking to you. The stunning statement means the Father treats the saints, Christians, those that have faith in Jesus, the same way he does his son, Jesus Christ. He clothes believers with the righteousness of Christ and grants them the son's perfect love and obedience. It's actually a very important doctrine that's being talked about here by John in this verse. It's a doctrine of double imputation. Fancy word. Imputation just means input, right? Um, most Christians understand that our sins were imputed into, into Christ, meaning our sins were placed on Christ when he was on the, on the cross, that he, he paid the penalty for our sins when we put our faith in him. He was the propitiation, which is another fancy word, which just means he took our punishment. God's wrath was satisfied. Our sins were paid for. But the forgiveness of sins does not exhaust God's work in justification. Sins, forgiveness of sins, and we think about this. We had an infinite debt that was paid for, right? And our sins were forgiven. Where does that bring us? Zero. We're just not sinners. But we're far from righteous, if that's the case. And God demands righteousness. Therefore, in justification, God not only forgives 
us our sins, right? Puts our sins on Christ's back, but he also imputed Jesus' righteousness to us. Meaning, we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he, as Jesus is, so also we are. We may have confidence because when God looks at you, on the day of judgment, when God looks at you, if you've put your faith in Christ, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' righteousness. Therefore, we should have no fear for the day of judgment. Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. It's a very interesting verse, and it's often this verse and the following verses are, are taken out of context. And I've really noticed, especially in worship songs, fear is looked at, at as like a, a very negative thing, something that we should run away from and we should embrace love. And fear and love can never go together. I see this a lot. That's not necessarily biblical. What is the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, when he was asked? Love the Lord, right, and love others. So love, right? It's Matthew twenty two thirty seven says this: Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Right? The greatest commandment is to love, love God and love others. Where did Jesus get that commandment from? You can say it. I heard it in the Old Testament. Brent, I know you know. First, first service was on it. So, Deuteronomy six. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Well, I want you to hear what it says in Deuteronomy 6. That's, just, that's verse 4. Here's verse 1 and 2. Now, this is Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2. Now, this is the commandment, the statues and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you, may not, uh, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. In other words, in this one passage here, Deuteronomy 6 is telling us to both love God, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and fear God, Deuteronomy 6, 2. And we know, if you're familiar with the scriptures, that, that we're called to fear God. Proverbs 1, 7, which is probably the most famous verse in the Old Testament on fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Psalms 2, 11, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Psalms 19, 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Psalms 34, 11. Oh, oh, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And it's not just the Psalms and Proverbs. We could go throughout the whole Old Testament and, and, and hear this concept that we are called to fear the Lord. And it's even in the New Testament. Philippians 2, 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So why does John say in this passage, there is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear? Well, it's actually pretty simple. There's two different types of fear in Scripture. There's two different types of fear in Scripture. If you would, turn with me to Exodus 20. Keep your finger in 1 John, because we're going to be right back there in 1 John 4. We'll be quick in Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verse 18. I know this passage isn't funny, but it kind of makes me laugh. 
you'll see. Verse 18 says this. When the people, this is Israel, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, by the way, that's God. (laughs) It's a scary God. They trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. They didn't want to go near God. And if you have this, which popular Christianity has, this big teddy bear in the sky that gives you a hug when you're sick or hurt, that's not this God. They trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and and said to Moses, this is what makes me laugh, speak to us yourself, we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses like, you go talk to God, we're going to go over here. Like, but look at what verse 20 says. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. I mean, that's a command. Do not be afraid. And this is what it says. God has come to test you so that you, so that fear of God will be with you. In other words, do not be afraid. Be afraid. <laughs> And that only makes sense is there's two different types of fears, and there's two different types of fears in just this one verse. Right? The first type of fear is a fear of judgment and rejection. Right? The Israelites were afraid of being destroyed by God. Look at verse 19. It says, The Israelites said, But, but uh, do not have God speak to us, or we will die. They're terrified they're going to get destroyed by this holy, just, wrathful God. And Moses said to them, Do not be afraid. God didn't come to you, Israel, to destroy you. He didn't come to judge you and reject you. But there's a second type of fear. Look at verse 20. God has come. This is why he's here. He has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. This is a healthy fear. This is a healthy fear. It's It's a respect. It's a reverence. It's an awe of a holy, big, all-powerful, glorious God. I really like that word, awe. And then don't get me wrong, the, the, the translation here, the, the Hebrew word and the New Testament Greek word is fear. <laughs> but there, there's a sense of fear that's related to awe. And that's why sometimes the, new, the, the translators of your scriptures will translate this word awe, amazement, or astonish. Sometimes there's a sense of fear in awe. I remember, it was just a month ago, actually, there was that big lightning storm that kind of went across Bear Valley, and, and Autumn and I were on the deck watching this lightning outside, and it was off in a distance, so it wasn't too loud, and the lightning would, would go, and you're like, okay, wait for it. And then you hear the thunder kind of in the distance. Well, it's just getting closer. It's starting to rain, and so we went in, inside, and I remember Autumn was sitting right next to our big window, and it was open, I think she was kind of trying to prove that she was brave because August wanted nothing to do with it. Well, lightning struck, and as soon as the lightning went, the thunder went, and so it was close, and it shook our, shook our whole house. It was so loud. And I remember she just looked at me with this terror in her face. And that night she grew a, a reverence, a respect, a, an awe of lightning, and it didn't, it didn't, keep her away from lightning. We just had another lightning storm like a week ago, I think, and, and we were outside kind of watching it in the distance, and she was a little bit more timid this time. I actually call this second type of fear fatherly fear. How many of you had a healthy fear of your father? And I, I, 
that healthy is important because some of you had, some of you out here probably had an unhealthy fear of your father. I'm talking about a healthy fear. How many of you had? You can raise your hand. My hand's up. <laughs> if you know my dad, everyone was terrified of my dad. LAPD for 25 years. And imagine that, he comes and becomes the campus security of my high school. <laughs> I still, to this day, hear all types of stories about Mr. Heiner. I'm glad I'm a pastor, because it's either Nathan, and I'm good with that, or it's Pastor Heiner, because in Tatchby, I will never be Mr. Heiner. <laughs> Everyone was terrified of my dad, and that included me. I remember once uh, I tried to lie to my dad, who is like a human lie detector. <laughs> I told him I was going to my friend's house, Adam's house, and which was totally normal. It was something that, you know, I think I was 17 or something, and we'd go there, drive there all the time. And I said, I'm going to my friend's house. Really was planning on going to a party, a place that I knew my parents wouldn't want me to be. And I remember walking out the door, and my dad kind of grabbed me by the shoulder and said, hey, you're going to Adam's house, right? I said, yeah, Dad, I'm going to Adam's house. He looked at me again and he said, you're going to Adam's house, right? <laughs> I said, yeah, Dad, I'm going to Adam's house. He goes, okay, good. I walked out the door and called Adam and said, I'm coming over. <laughs> I had a healthy fear of my dad, but I never feared that my dad was going to reject me. Never. I never had that first type of fear, the fear of judgment. I had a healthy fear, a fear that kept me from sinning. You know what's funny is as a father, I've seen this fear now. I've seen it. If I, if I raise my voice, my children listen. And Sarah just, just doesn't have it. She, it's not the same if I raise my voice. There's a sense of fear. Right? And it's a healthy fear because it does two things. One, it keeps them from danger. If they're about to run out in the street and I raise my voice, they'll stop. And it keeps them from sinning. Right? It might not be for the right motives, but it keeps them away from danger. But it also, and this is important, it also drives them to me when they're scared. Right, the respect or awe or reverence, whatever it is my children have for me as a father, brings security because they know I love them and I won't reject them and I will use all that strength, all that might that they are in awe of or whatever it is to protect them. Remember that story with Autumn and Lightning? You know what her first instinct was with this terror as she looked and turned around was to look at me and run and jump straight in my arms. There's a healthy fear of God. It's a fear of reverence and awe. It keeps us from sinning and it drives us to him when life is confusing, when life is hard, when life is scary. Amen. Because we know that this fierce 
fearful, massive, glorious, big, all-powerful God loves us. Just like a little child, right? And their father. That's why it's childlike faith. That's not the fear that John's talking about in 1 John. He's talking about a different type of fear. He's not talking about this fatherly fear. If you would, turn back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. John is talking about the fear of judgment. You know how I know this? Well, let's look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Listen, I had a a healthy fear of my dad, but I knew he would never reject me. I knew my dad loved me in a similar way. And I say, this is only for Christians. In a similar way, if you've put your faith in Christ, you should have a healthy fear of God that keeps you from sinning. But because of God's love, you should not fear that he'll ever reject you. Romans 8.38 says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, that's for those that have put their faith in Christ. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, listen, both these fears are healthy. Both these fears are healthy. The first fear of judgment should be fearful. Put your faith in Christ. Put your faith in Christ so that your sins, when you put your faith in Christ, are placed on Christ's back and his righteousness is placed on yours so that when God looks at you, he looks at you as a son and you don't have to fear the fear of judgment anymore. Biblical love brings assurance. And lastly, biblical love is practice. Biblical love is practice. Look at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we spent a lot of time on this. John comes back to this and this over and over again. And honestly, This is why Jesus brought the second greatest commandment. This is a biblical concept. It's a logical argument, right? This just makes sense. How can you claim to love the invisible God if you don't love his visible images? That makes no sense. This is what Ray Van Ness, the theologian, says. Love for God must result in love for other believers. As John has been urging, if one does not love God's people, he does not love God. Thus, to claim to love God while refusing to love his people makes one a liar. We cannot demonstrate love toward God while being hidden away by ourselves, concerned only with ourselves and God. To love God, we must care for his people. Thus, it is ludicrous to claim we love God while failing to assemble with his people. The Bible knows nothing of a just me and God religion. In other words, biblical love is practiced. 
It's practice. It's exercised. I want you to think about this, and I've, I've said this before, but I think it's significant. Both the Old and New Testament, when you are saved, you're always saved into a community. Old Testament, you're saved into Israel. New Testament, you're saved into the church. That's because God is a communal God. He's a trinity. He's a God of love. God is love. And he expects us to be a communal people. Verse 21. And this commandment we have heard from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother, right? Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God. He wasn't asked for the second greatest commandment, but, but he adds it. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God and love for the brethren are inseparable. Right? If man is made in the image of God and Christians have been reborn into the image of Christ and have the Holy Spirit, have God living within them, you can't say you love God and not love the church. Love those within the church. Makes no sense. The one is not possible apart from the other. If one loves God, he cannot refuse to love the image of God, his brethren. Our love for each other, in other words, proves our love for God. Right? And that's why I think Jesus added that second greatest commandment, because you can fool yourself into thinking you love God. The Pharisees fooled themselves. They thought more than anyone else that they loved God. Jesus says, fine, you think that? Prove your love by loving others. The Pharisees had nothing else to say to him. Those are the seven aspects of biblical love found in 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Biblical love starts with God. Biblical love is sacrificial. Biblical love is active. And today we went over these four points. Biblical love makes the invisible God visible. Biblical love is doctrinally sound. Biblical love brings assurance. And biblical love is practice. I want to end the sermon this morning by just restating why, why we're in First John in the first place. We really just wanted to teach on brotherly love. I, you know, going to seminary, there's a couple things that I learned just by, by diving into Scripture. It wasn't that I, I didn't know these things, but I didn't realize how much they're emphasized in Scripture until I was diving into Scripture and spending hours and hours and hours studying Scripture. One of them was missions, and, and you've heard me talk about that, but the, but the second one is the importance of a, the local church. Not the universal church, the local church, a church body, and how much we're commanded to love each other. The one another's in Scriptures. They're all over the place. And how our love for each other is a witness to the community. And that's why throughout First John I've been praying that our love is seen by those outside these church walls. That they see how we love each other and them. We're called to love them too, but, but especially each other. And they see that and go, what is different about those people? And they see God's love. And so we pick First John for that. And we think the best way of, of loving each other is not coming here just on Sunday mornings. Right? Obviously, you heard me going through Acts that corporate worship is important. It's been modeled to us by the first church. But love really happens when you have, have a small group of people that you can intimately get connected with, keep each other accountable, and love on each other. And so we really want to see people get involved in small groups. 
Small groups, I count Sunday morning, Sunday school, that's, that's a small group. Or midweek growth, um, growth group. We'd love to see you get involved. And if you, if you feel God pulling in your heart to small, start a small group, I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to talk with you. This fall, most, a lot of our small groups take the summer off, and, and that's great. And if you don't, keep meeting throughout the summer. That's awesome too. But in the fall, we'd really like to push small groups as a leadership. We'd like to see the majority of our church in some kind of small group loving the way we're called to love each other. And I would encourage you this. If you're a part of a small group that's loving like that, and we have so many just awesome small groups right now, invite some non-believers so they can witness the love that we have for each other. I honestly think sometimes small groups are a better place to invite non-believers in the church Sunday mornings so they can see that intimate love and go, what is that? I, I'm going to say this. I, I, the, the power of salvation is in the gospel, and I hope you guys hear that. That's clear. The gospel message. And that means I can walk up to someone that doesn't know me at all, share the gospel, and they could be saved. Because the power is the message. But I'm just going to be honest, and, and someone's going to come up to me and go, well, I was, so that's fine. Um, I don't know anyone that was saved by door-to-door evangelism. I don't know anyone, and again, a few of you are going to come up and say that. I'm not speaking out against door-to-door evangelism. We're called to do that. So don't get me wrong there. But I can name so many people in our church that came to our church because they saw the love of our church and then were saved. It's a witness to our community how we love each other. It's a high calling. So that's our challenge. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I am so thankful I am part of a church, Lord, that does love. Lord, I know we're a part of a church that takes doctrine and and teaching and the Bible very seriously, Lord. But as a pastor, I get to see the behind the scenes, Lord. And and I'm so blessed at the sacrifices people make for each other within our church, Lord. And, and, And done humbly so not everyone gets to see it. Part of me wishes everyone could see it, Lord. Yet I know... Uh, so many people that started coming to our church because they were loved on by our church and they saw the love we had for each other and our calling to love each other is so high, Lord. You have called us to love each other the way you have loved us, Lord. And that's impossible outside of the spirit and the power of Christ, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, that you, you bring a supernatural love for each other, God that comes from your spirit living within us, that is a testimony, that is a witness to our community, Lord. That when we go and share the gospel door to door, that people go, yeah, I know that church. That's the church that loves each other and are willing to listen, willing to listen to the good news, Lord. Be with us this morning, Lord. Be with us throughout the rest of this week. Help encourage us, Lord, to love one another. Lord, I pray as we go through the summer, as we come to the fall, and we really start emphasizing small groups, Lord, that you put it on people's hearts to join a small group or start a small group, and that the majority of our church can say, I'm part of this intimate group that loves each other, Lord. I pray for that for our church. In your son's name, amen.